Welcome back to another episode of Digital Business Models Podcast by 4Week MBA. In this session, I interview John Gertner, who is a journalist, historian, and feature writer for the New York Times Magazine. He's also author of the Idea Factory, Bellabs and the Great Age of American Innovation. This is an incredible book and a search. It's also a New York Times bestseller, and it tells us the story of Bellabs in the context of one of the largest monopolists of our time, which was AT&T. He tells us the history of one of the first monopolies that we had in modern technology, which was the phone business, how Bell Labs evolved in this context and how from Bell Labs we actually saw the rise of one of the most important innovations of our century, from information theory to semiconductors. We'll answer many of the questions to how was Bell Labs um, how Bell Labs managed to actually build those innovations to how it evolved within the context of AT&T to the many successes, but also the failures of Bell Labs. And also we're going to look at the end, who might be a similar comparison to Bell Labs in the modern business world. John, thanks uh, for joining this conversation. It's uh, really a great pleasure to to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure on my end too. Yeah, I'm very glad that uh, uh, Jimmy Sony, uh, author of the founders, introduced us. And uh, you know, there there are so many things to discuss based on your book that uh, really I don't know where to start. But uh, you know, you you just wrote this um, this uh, incredible research on uh, one of the most uh, innovative uh, you know labs that we had uh, you know back in the days. Uh, and um, it would be nice to explore in this session the idea of how innovation was shaped uh, back then, but also how uh, it um, helped to evolve innovation today. So we're talking about Bell Labs. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about, uh, you know, how you uh, got to cover the Bell Labs in the book and uh, some of the things of the early days of Bell Labs? Sure, sure. I mean, I, I think... Um... I mean, the, the, the reason I, I wrote the book, you know, I was working, writing stories on, on technology and innovation and science. And, you know, the question often occurred to me, you know, the historical question of, you know, how do, how do these technologies come about? And I had the good fortune of actually growing up near Bell Laboratories. And I'll, I'll explain exactly for your, for your listeners what Bell Labs was in a moment. Mm-hmm. So I had a kind of personal connection, although my family didn't work there, but I, I understood that this laboratory um, was really this kind of epicenter of innovation during a very kind of important period in, I guess, American history, but also global history for sort of this origin of communication technologies, which really goes from the post-World War II period. So maybe we would say the, uh, the, the 1945, up until really the, the you know, late 1970s, early 1980s, when, when you know, digital technologies really took over and Silicon Valley and some of these other companies really sprang into existence. So um, the origins of this, of this laboratory, um, for that, you really have to kind of go back in American history to the invention of the telephone which um, the patent of the telephone went to Alexander Graham Bell 
um, some technology historians, you know, would will will correctly note that there was a patent battle over who actually patent, you know, earned or deserves the patent. But the patent went to Bell, and the company that sprang up around his invention here in the United States was American Telephone and Telegraph. And it's different than the AT&T of today here, but um, it really kind of had a sort of monopoly, almost like it was the national phone company for many years. Um, and by the 1920s and 1930s, American Telephone and Telegraph was really the largest company in the world, the largest company by number of employees, by um, stock valuation, the, the largest company, I think, by revenues as well. And in the mid-1920s, this huge, enormous telephone company decided to create um, a standalone research and development laboratory, R&D lab, and they, they moved all their engineers and scientists, basically, into this lab, which they called Bell Telephone Laboratories, or Bell Labs. And the first building, the first instance of Bell Labs was a, a very large um, laboratory in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. And... Um, I'll just I'll let you cut in and, and guide me in a moment, but I, I should say you know the notion of an R&D lab in the mid 1920s, it wasn't a brand new idea. I mean, German pharmaceutical companies had been doing it for you know the late 1800s. Um, General Electric had started one about a, a dozen years before, but Bell Labs was a kind of R&D lab on a larger scale and with larger ambitions and with more scientists, not just engineers than had really ever existed before. And at the start, it had about two, 3,000 scientists and engineers. Yeah, and um, I think it's a, a, few, a few key points, I think, to highlight to, to help understand the context and how things uh, evolved. Um, the Bell Labs was, uh, as we'll see, a spin-off of, uh, of uh, one of the first probably uh, modern monopolies that we had. And of course, as you said, this uh, story is so interesting because it spans across the end of the 1800 uh, up to you know let's say the 60s and 70s when we had really the the birth of uh, of, uh, of silicon valley and it's mm -hmm. interesting to notice that uh, as you also pointed out uh, the first uh, uh, development um, uh, the the first r&d uh, location was actually not the silicon valley was actually in new york so there was uh, also a move uh, like a geographical move uh, mm -hmm. of where innovation was based uh, back in the days and where uh, then it would end up uh, being based as we uh, go through the, the birth of the Silicon Valley. And uh, th there is an interesting point which would be nice to, um, to emphasize, which is, of course, uh, AT&T, which gave birth to uh, the Bell Labs, was, of course, a monopoly. But uh, there was also uh, a different perception of uh, the company uh, back, uh, you know, in the early uh, 1900 uh, going forward. Uh, what were some of the steps uh, that, you know, the, the company took at the time, how the strategy changed, also the perception of uh, AT&T changed so that the company could start putting a lot of resources in, into Bell Labs and therefore enable the sort of innovation that we had in those years? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's a wonderful question because, you know, in retrospect, we might sort of look fondly as this at this company that changed the world, but at the time it was fairly controversial and, and there were plenty of detractors that saw AT&T as this sort of um, almost like they might see, say, Amazon or, or Google of today as a, mm -hmm. as a very large, almost rapacious, monopolistic uh, force that wasn't necessarily a force for good. 
And, um, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, that not to sort of answer whether it was a force for good or, or, or bad, it was, it was a complex, large company that was, um, that was very aggressive in sort of securing its monopoly and oftentimes um, beating its young competitors because it did have some early competitors. However, um, they were also expert at public relations. And I think what's probably crucial to say is this company became very, very good at what it did. And it's, you know, it's, its purpose, its goal was to literally connect the country and then eventually help connect the world through technology, communications technologies. And so, I mean, you know, in many ways, I, I guess Bell Labs and the innovations that came out of there, you know, did serve this larger sort of public relations purpose of making this kind of great company admirable and it legitimized these expenses on technology and research. But at the same time, um, there, there was, um, there was a, a real, um, not, not just a sort of innovative force, but a, a real world changing quality to the work that was done there. And um, one thing that I think, um, just an, as a related point, and, and there's, a, there's a kind of question here, which is, I think that I wrestled with and, and different people who, who've studied Bell Labs have, it's that, okay, why did so many things come out of this laboratory at this one era in time? Um, you know, and I'll just, you know, there's the transistor, there's the theory of the laser, there's many early lasers, there's, you know, the early ideas for digital technologies, there's communication satellites, there's the plans for cellular phones, and really on and on, and all sorts of other theoretical mathematical work. But, you know, the Bell Telephone Laboratory's scientists, they didn't have to do this. And the managers, I think, at Bell Labs deserve a fair amount of credit for sort of being incredibly ambitious and um, incredibly sort of visionary, I think, and sort of looking for new and disruptive technologies that would eventually replace these old ones. And, um, you know, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a really important point that this laboratory could have just been a good engineering laboratory but it became something very, very different, very much greater, I think, because of the people who ran it. Yeah, and uh, I think it's extremely important also to highlight that, uh, of course, uh, uh, at, the, um, at the beginning, what made uh, at and a monopoly and uh, also what uh, enabled uh, the, the research at, um, at Bell Labs was a very practical uh, issue, which was, you know, at the time they were trying to connect uh, through through um, a phone line between like uh, New York and San Francisco, which today uh, yeah. seems to be something like uh, that we give for for granted, but at the time it was a huge a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think this opens up uh, an interesting point, which is uh, as you also discuss in the book, uh, you mentioned um, the uh, you know the, the phone business. It's a sort of. Uh, uh, um, not sure if I phrase it correctly, but as a as a natural monopoly, what does it mean? Uh, how this actually shaped AT&T as a company, and then enabled uh, uh, also Bell Labs as a research lab for for AT&T. Yeah, um, it, it's an interesting question. I mean that that was that was AT&T's contention. They they would argue that phone service was a natural monopoly, and I think. I think this idea goes back to what you pointed out earlier that you know solving these practical problems um, took enormous um, amounts of, of work and insight. I mean, this was really a brand new technology that was suddenly you know had the intention of spanning the country and, and the world. 
Um, it was very different than telegraph cables and transmitting telegraph pulses. Um, you know, to create this sort of rich network of instantaneous communication um, meant that there was really kind of no end in sight to the problems that needed to be solved. And, you know, one, you know, there, there were arguments on both sides, but, but a very compelling argument, I would say, that AT&T made both to regulators and the government, as well as to the public, was that this technology and phone signals in general um, sort of, uh, you know, a system like the one the Bell system was created worked best when it had a kind of national compatibility, when the parts were, you know, the parts, the systems were all compatible, were all sort of run by one sort of entity. Um, and that it not only created a kind of consistency in technology, but it allowed for certain economic benefits because you could, for instance, you know, make more profit out of urban centers where you could have tremendous number of phone subscribers as opposed to rural subscribers where people might be far apart. So in essence, a national company, a phone monopoly could uh, use that urban, those urban dollars to subsidize phone coverage in rural areas that were you know, mm -hmm. less profitable. So there were a variety of different um, arguments, but you could, I guess, to sum up, they would make the argument that it was both um, a natural monopoly for technological reasons, as well as for economic reasons, at least if we were looking at sort of the benefit to society. Mm -hmm. um, uh, as, as you and I will probably get to, and you know, eventually, um, that event, eventually that argument, <laughs> that argument um, ceased to be uh, compelling to, to government regulators. And as, as the phone industry matured, as the technology matured, as competitors sprang up, um, it became less and less important. But in that early crucial period, um, it was very important to sort of make that argument. And I think to connect it just to Bell Labs and their sort of innovative capabilities, um, being connected to the largest company in the world that also had this sort of, um, okay, you know, a monopoly that was blessed by the United States government meant that um, you had not only a tremendous amount of money to work with and to hire people and to hire the best people, but that you could engage in projects and research um, that was really long-term, uh, that you could do things, for instance, where you didn't have to necessarily worry about you know, quarterly profits. So it, it allowed for a long range, a long range technological vision that I think was quite rare at the time and is certainly quite rare today too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, so I think it's uh, very important to recap a little bit what we said. So we started from a position where of course we had uh, this uh, first monopoly that uh, was uh, AT&T. Uh, mm -hmm. where also the perception changed because at the beginning, as we saw, AT&T was uh, looked at, uh, at uh, especially at the end of the, the uh, 1800, it was looked at uh, as, as a sort of, uh, you know, a huge monopoly who controlled the market, uh, similarly to probably how we see today companies like, uh, you know, Amazon or Google, as uh, we already pointed out. But then, of course, this perception changed. And as you mentioned, uh, these also at least the main argument, argument from AT&T was that the, the phone business, the way it was structured, it borrowed itself as a sort of a natural monopoly. And this also sort of made sense because if you, if you think about it, of course, there are features of the, 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 the uh, phone business initially that uh, actually uh, looked uh, like a central uh, uh, technology where, for instance, uh, uh, you needed to route uh, you know, calls to a central place and to, you needed to reroute 
them. Uh, for instance, you could not uh, have uh, uh, multiple calls running on the same line. I mean, it had a, a de definitely a different kind of, uh, uh, let's say, features that uh, we then uh, found with, uh, with the more uh, decentralized technologies by nature, more like the internet, even though over time, as we saw, even there, we had uh, a little bit of, uh, quite a little bit of centralization. But we, we, can, we can say that there are some uh, arguments that made sense when it comes to the phone business. But yeah. uh, it, it's interesting because um, uh, just to mention some of the key moments, uh, we, we get to the early 1900s and pretty much precisely in the 1921 when we have the, the Willis-Graham Act uh, that uh, uh, where the, the US Congress formally exempted uh, the telephone business from uh, uh, antitrust laws. And this was a key moment because of course, uh, it yeah. finally justified uh, AT&T to actually uh, say, okay, I'm fine being a monopoly as long as I'm actually throwing all my resources in, uh, in developing, of course, uh, phone business. And as you said, also developing it and subsidizing more rural areas where it didn't make, uh, it didn't make much sense to, to develop like uh, the telephone business. And then on the other side, there was also another key moment because in 1924, there was the, the, the span of, of uh, uh, Bell Labs from uh, AT&T. And I think this is a key moment because of course, it's also the moment where scientific research becomes extremely important because it's important also to highlight that before uh, that moment, it was a way more uh, important, especially in uh, from the U.S. perspective, uh, uh, a form of tinkering rather than research. I mean, even even if we, if we think about the first. Uh, the first, uh, let's say, inventors like uh, Edison, I mean, those were really tinkerers uh, rather than uh, researchers. So there has been a huge transition also in the, in the way innovation has been perceived. Uh, so what are some of those uh, key moments uh, and uh, how Bell Labs uh, then uh, changed uh, after, uh, you know, uh, let's say the 20s? how uh, it was organized and what was the, let's say the, the model that they used to develop innovation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, um, I mean, I think, I think you, you sort of hit on a point that, that, that I'll, I'll, I'll expand on a little bit that, that sort of, I think leads to an answer to those, that question. Um, that idea of tinkering versus that idea of creating kind of, you know, world-changing or, you know, disruptive technologies is something, you know, I, I talk a lot about in the book. Um, by hiring scientists, by, by creating a laboratory, an R&D lab that was not just engineers solving problems with, say, hey, let's try this new material for, for you know, copper cable or this new alloy, but hiring scientists who are understanding, okay, we have a problem, why do we have a problem? And they were, they were seeking fundamental knowledge, really, to sort of solve their problems in a way that was different than saying, let's just find an engineering solution and fix it and move on. And so, you know, that, that sort of core, I think, uh, animating principle for Bell Labs of let's not just create new technologies with new engineering combinations and the like, but let's listen to the scientists who have a new fundamental understanding for, for instance, the movement of electrons in semiconducting crystals, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second, which that was really, you know, this, this essential sort of, I think, leap for the laboratory itself and the industrial laboratory itself in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, 
to, to sort of understand, to find fundamental knowledge and then use it to create new inventions and innovations. So, you know, going from there, um, I think it's important that, you know, the structure of Bell Labs as it kind of evolved over the late 20s and through the 1930s kind of moved in that direction where the laboratory itself was hiring scientists as well as engineers to solve whatever millions of problems. And in, in a way you could kind of break down the fundamental problems of Bell Labs and the phone company came down to one, transmission. How do you get a call from one place to another? And two, switching. How do you connect everybody to everybody else? And the technologies to do those things are really, really complex, especially in this pre-digital world. And um, in many respects, I think a lot of the fundamental knowledge and the research at Bell Labs, especially coming out of the war, was geared towards that. And the transistor was too. And you know, so, so let's, let's just to take a step back, by the early 1940s, Bell Labs had expanded into a research and development operation of about 5,000 to 6,000 engineers and scientists. And the research group was probably 15% of Bell Labs. And these were scientists, physicists, chemists, and the like with PhDs. And then the development people were more engineering oriented. Um, who were really trying to sort of, you know, use, use the, some of these ideas coming out of research to solve the phone company's problems. And of course, it's crucial to, to, to note that World War II occurred, uh, you know, earlier in Europe, but here, um, you know, most of the emphasis of Bell Labs during the early 1940s was on working, you know, you know to serve, you know, military needs. And out of that work, and a lot of that work was on radar systems at Bell Labs and on communication systems. Um, a lot of, out of that work came certain, I think, insights. Um, the main kind of mover, I think, at Bell Labs, the main leader that came out of the wartime era was a guy named Mervyn Kelly, who I write about in the book a lot. And Kelly, by the end of the war, had risen to the head of research and was vice president of Bell Labs. He would later become the president of Bell Labs. And he saw a couple important things come out of the war effort. One was that um, you could achieve things with the right, you know, with the smartest scientists and engineers together working on a problem in timeframes that once would have been thought unthinkable. He saw this with the radar effort at Bell Labs. He also saw this with the Los Alamos effort um, in New Mexico for the atomic bomb. Um, and the second thing he also saw was that what you really wanted to do was to solve problems, not with like-minded people, but that new ideas and good solutions actually came out of the interface of different disciplines. Now, this probably sounds like an obvious idea to, to your listeners and to people of today, but at the time it was kind of radical. You didn't want a team of physicists all working together. You wanted physicists, chemists, and engineers all working together and sometimes arguing with each other about mm -hmm. solutions. And I think why this was particularly crucial, because is that, that became a sort of model for Bell Labs, a model of how problems were solved, a model of how research leaps were undertaken. And right after the war, I think most crucially, and just to use one example of, of really an important leap that, was, that occurred at Bell Labs, was that this fellow Mervyn Kelly set up a team of scientists that eventually became known as the Solid State Team and he handpicked a group of engineers and chemists and physicists and metallurgists and asked them to look deeper into the nature of semiconducting materials. 
And he believed there was a solution that would come out of that for some of the challenges in switching and transmission that the phone company was, was dealing with. Um, the phone company had technologies for transmission that relied on vacuum tubes that were hard to make, expensive, used a lot of power, were kind of bulky um, for, for switching. They used these vast banks of switches that were electromagnetic and there were millions of them in the phone system. And uh, they cost, you know, they had great expense. Uh, there were sort of questions at the phone company whether the increase in traffic in the future of the phone company could even be accommodated by the technology that existed at the time in the 1940s. So they needed a kind of new technological solution. And out of that, the solid state team arose and the, um, to, 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 to ruin the story, the, the, the solid state team eventually after working for a couple of years on silicon and on um, uh, germanium came up with the first transistor, uh, which really changed the world. And in the book, I call it really the most important, one of the most important innovations of the 20th century. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, a few key points as I was listening to, uh, you know, to what you said, uh, a few things came to mind. Uh, of course, uh, the, when there was this transition from tinkering to research, it's extremely important to understand that it's just a different approach. Both work extremely well, but when you actually put an emphasis on research, you're looking way forward. So you're not just looking at things that work. You're also, as you said, listening to scientists that have a different philosophical understanding of a discipline, and therefore they're actually able to look ahead of, let's say, 20, 30, 40 years from, from where they are. And as we'll see, actually, uh, some of the ideas that um, were developed also at Bell Labs took uh, many decades to actually realize in full, uh, as you know, uh, as we'll see also information theory was uh, uh, the, the birth of information theory actually uh, happened uh, in, uh, at the Bell Labs. There is also another interesting point um, that uh, came to mind, which is the fact that anyhow, um, the, the approach that Bell Labs uh, had was quite uh, eccentric. I mean, eccentricity was extremely important, especially in the, in the development of, in, in conceiving a new idea. And then of course, as you needed to actually execute this idea at scale, then people like Kelly completely understood that you needed many, many people uh, who, uh, were, uh, who needed to be like way more practical to actually execute those eccentric ideas. So on the one side, you had like those very eccentric individuals and uh, many of those ideas were born, as you said, also as a result of uh, arguments <laughs> between those people. But then, mm -hmm. of course, once those ideas had developed and uh, there was uh, a technology that needed to be manufactured at scale, then things changed. So this connects back to sort of the innovation loop that uh, also Bell Labs uh, followed, where we had uh, basic research and then we had applied research, development and manufacturing. And of course, in the basic research phase, you have a lot of people who are very, very eccentric and they look at the future and they're interested uh, and curious about uh, uh, those fields, not necessarily because they're, uh, as we see, um, interested about the applications. And one of those people probably we can touch a little bit about that, but uh, definitely it was, um, uh, you know, Claude Shannon. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, of course, there is like the applied research uh, where it requires a different mindset, probably an hybrid mindset uh, between like research and sort of development, 
of a product. And then, of course, there is the development and manufacturing that uh, where, again, we need a different kind of approach and different kind of uh, kinds of people. And this was uh, Bell Apps at the time. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting to point out um, that this was a kind of post-war model that, you know, in some ways has been challenged um, effectively and has evolved into different sort of models of innovation since that time. Um, and, and I think it, it's often the case where, where people will say, well, Bell Labs had this sort of old idea of like, you know, the idea would come up in the research department, it would be developed in the development department, and then it would go to manufacturing. And sometimes that's true. I mean, that's, that is true, for instance, with the transistor. Um, it was created by a research team and handed over to develop, development team. And eventually it was brought to scale by a manufacturing team and, uh, and achieve this kind of scale and impact, I think, that innovations have. But you know, Bell Labs also did some interesting things where I think, I think you know, these, these were very bright people and they were, they were operating in an era where they were trying to understand like how to manufacture basically you know, revolutionary technologies at scale. Um, and they certainly didn't have all the answers, but they were trying to learn them. And they would even kind of set up small laboratories at the manufacturing plants sometimes. Um, and try to, I think, capture some of the ideas that would come when you are actually putting a new product into production, that you could learn from it, that you know, sometimes you would actually make a leap um, from manufacturing something. When you're actually manufacturing something, you're always trying to make it better. Um, and so you know, I think sometimes ideas didn't always flow one way from research to development to manufacturing. Sometimes there was a kind of uh, circularity to them or feedback loops that were also very helpful. And I think, uh, you know, today, I think the innovation patterns um, are, are much more diverse, but in the sort of era of the large industrial lab, um, they were still being worked out. Yeah, and there is also a very important effect of uh, uh, serendipity on innovation, where in the book you also mention it in reference to uh, the, uh, call, uh, the, the zone refining, which for a bit of context was uh, a way to, to actually uh, manufacture semiconductors uh, in, in, a, in a more uh, pure form. Uh, so uh, in the case of in, in that uh, specific context, uh, you know, Bell Labs was working on a for, form of uh, semiconductor, which, which was the germanium. Uh, and uh, this um, idea of zone refining came from, uh, from um, a metallurgist who was actually uh, taking a nap. <laughs> on uh, on the job, uh, can mm -hmm. you can you also emphasize a little bit about that? Because I think it's very interesting. Uh, even though, again, at the time, if you were Kelly, of course, you wanted to emphasize as much as possible the ability of Bell Labs to uh, have a process in place for innovation, innovation loop. But then, of course, this innovation loop also got uh, uh, fed by uh, some uh, random moments of uh, innovation. Yeah, you know, you know, Kelly's a very interesting person as the leader of Bell Labs, and he was a, a sort of hard charging person who would run up and down staircases and was always in a hurry, and um, wouldn't necessarily have a kind of, as we'd say here in the US, a warm and fuzzy type, not at all. <laughs> and yet, you know, he, he had a deep understanding, I think, of how scientists worked and how sometimes, you know, engineers as well, and how sometimes solutions were very difficult and failure was part of the process and giving people room to work um, was crucial. Um, and, you know, in all my research, I never came across any kind of, you know, criticisms where he sort of 
would 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 sort of want something done faster and faster from a scientist who was who was literally working on the um, cutting edge or bleeding edge of new ideas. He understood that it was extremely difficult to find new breakthroughs and new knowledge. So, for instance, this guy Bill Fan, who who was you know working on this problem of how do you kind of purify large ingots of silicon at the time, which was a pretty challenging problem. And how do you do it effectively so that you can scale it to manufacturing? Um, yeah, literally was trying to come up with something and took his usual nap after lunch and then woke up and said, I know how to do that. Um, <laughs> but so so there were these sort of moments of, of, of kind of insight that that I think, you know, I know that Kelly was was sort of sympathetic to this fact that, that a lot of these scientists were quirky. Um, they were working on difficult problems. They sometimes came at them from angles that were unconventional. And you know, you'd mentioned Claude Shannon a little bit um, before. Um, Claude Shannon was a mathematician, very eccentric individual who sort of made his own rules. You know, and and sort of would you know go down the hallways of Bell Labs, riding a unicycle and juggling, and um, and and really you know building robots in ways that that would make a lot of people scratch their heads. So you know there was this kind of eccentricity that was tolerated and sometimes just you know sometimes appreciated, I'd say, at Bell Labs, um, because it was part of this kind of group that were working, you know, to do, I guess you could say, challenging things that had never been done before. Yeah, and I think it's very important to emphasize that actually um, eccentricity was appreciated, but you also needed to, to earn it, right? I mean, uh, mm -hmm. If you were Claude Shannon, you could do those things because you actually <laughs> were really re revolutionizing a field and you were like way, way ahead of, uh, of your time. Very uh, true. Yes, yeah. very true. Like the, the, the sort of, you know, they're, uh, here in the US, we call it a star system. You know, if you're a star, you know, you get, you get, <laughs> you get a little more, bit more room to, to either um, be eccentric or, or even to misbehave sometimes. Um, and, and I think that, that there's, there's some truth to that too, Bell Labs. Yeah. And before we get to the, you know, full into like uh, semiconductors, which definitely opened up one of the most uh, important industries of our time, it would be nice uh, also to look a little bit of, uh, at the, the character of uh, Claude Shannon and how he came up with uh, this, uh, with this idea that was so uh, ahead of, of his time. So how, how did the, he even actually conceive that? Yeah, uh, you know Shannon. I mean, he worked. He was a math, you know, mathematician um, who who studied at MIT. Um, again, I think probably it's fairest to say. I mean, somebody he was somebody who was fascinated by puzzles. He worked in cryptography during World War II, and I think that was a kind of um, essential aspect of his thinking at the time. Coming out of World War II, his studies in cryptography eventually lent themselves once he started working at Bell Labs to how do you send a message from one place to another in a way, for instance, where there wouldn't be any errors. Um, and he started to think in terms of messages, not in terms of how engineers at Bell Labs were thinking of them, which was, you know, sine waves moving through copper cables and systems and being switched, but he began to think of them as sort of discrete units of information. And um, eventually this took shape in a kind of um, thesis uh, that was published. It was called, you know, at the time it was called communications theory, which was a sort of 
um, overarching theory of, of literally how do you send a, a message from one place to another um, most efficiently and effectively. Uh, eventually it became more commonly known as information theory. And this idea is sort of the root of, of both um, standards for how you would send messages digitally. Um, it's also um, a sort of uh, guide or, or um, uh, sort of yardstick as we call it out here or a measure for um, how much information can be sent at any given time. It's led to error correcting codes that allow for um, accuracy um, with messages sent over longer distances. Um, and, you know, Shannon was fairly humble about this, but, you know, at the time it was a, a sort of breakthrough that a lot of his colleagues sort of said, I, I don't even know how he could come up with such a thing. It was thought of as, as 10 or 20 years ahead of its time. But in fact, it's sort of, served as the basis, really, this kind of set of, of guiding intellectual principles that have sort of laid, I think, the foundation for that kind of information age and the sort of digital exchange of communications. Yeah. And going forward, um, I think there was, as we go to the mid the 50s, there was a sort of a contrast, a contrast between like AT&T as a company who needed to actually implement things with a very slow pace. And then on the other side, like Bell Labs was actually innovating at uh, such a pace that uh, they were looking uh, years ahead, and just like in the case of uh, Shannon, who had developed uh, the, the, the idea of information theory uh, way ahead of, uh, of his time. But um, going forward, there is, I think, a key moment to look at, uh, which is the antitrust case of uh, 1956. Mm -hmm. that uh, actually um, it was, you know, good for AT&T as, uh, let's say, it didn't break the company up. But on their, side, on their side, it posed a condition that later down the road would turn out to be just probably the, the end of the, the whole thing, which was the fact that AT&T could not enter the, the, the computer um, uh, or like uh, consumer electronics uh, market. Mm -hmm. How was the evolution at that time? And how did actually this also lead to, uh, let's say, um, having the semiconductors research also going outside Bell Labs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a really important moment, I think, in Bell Labs history, where, where in the early 50s, they sort of saw this coming, that the, the federal government had a certain level of discomfort with how the company did business and how the company kept competitors out. And it was, it was clear that they, um, there were going to be certain limits set upon the company. And what came out of that, essentially, um, which occurred really at just at about the moment in the 1950s when the transistor was just about entering mass production. So you had this sort of um, new component of electronic systems, the transistor that replaced the vacuum tube. And it suddenly allowed for this kind of miniaturization on a scale that had never existed before. Um, so it was seen at that point already as a radical technology. Um, but what Bell Labs had to do based on this consent decree was it could use transistors and it could use any of its technologies and research for any kind of phone communications business. Bell Labs and AT&T were still the monopoly in the United States. However, they were prohibited from going outside of those, that kind of core business 
And at the same time, they had to make their innovations like the transistor available to outside customers. So um, they either had to give away previous um, patents or license them, or they could license, for instance, the transistor technologies for a fee, which is what they ended up doing. And you know, if you go back to that era, Bell Labs would, would have these kind of conventions really, where they would you know, hire buses and bring representatives from companies all around the world who would come to Bell Labs for like these three-day seminars in the 1950s on you know, how, do you how do you manufacture a transistor? What kind of transistors are there? What are quality control issues? How do you kind of create consistency in manufacturing? And it was kind of a recipe book that they would offer to companies that wanted to spend whatever it was, I think $25,000, um, a not insignificant amount at the time on this technology. So, um, but your point is, is, is well taken that, you know, in this sort of, in this sort of um, moment in time, they were sharing their technology in a way that planted seeds, I think, <laughs> that eventually kind of became the end of Bell Labs and the end of AT&T. It allowed for one thing for the computer industry eventually and the electronics industry in general to become much more dominant. And it also allowed for competitors and competition to use some of this new technology in a way that eventually threatened the monopoly of the phone company as well. Mm -hmm. And can we go through a little bit of some of uh, the, especially the key people that enabled the development of uh, semiconductors at uh, Bell Labs also, because this will connect to, I think, another key point of how uh, this sort of uh, uh, research span into one of the most important industries that still today exist. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, who, who are some of the key people that, uh, you know, developed uh, the semiconductor uh, what happened and, uh, you know, sure. um, yeah, what happened after Bell Labs as well? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, for sure. I mean, William Shockley was handpicked, Bill Shockley, by, by mm -hmm. this fellow, um, Mervyn Kelly, to help lead the transistor or the solid state team. And um, together with Shockley, uh, Walter Bratton and John Bardeen, two physicists, um, came up with the invention um, in 1947, December 1947. That was the first transistor. Um, and eventually, you know, I, I think it's important to note the first transistor wasn't actually that useful. Um, it, had, it was very hard to make and it had certain limitations um, as a technology. But Bill Shockley came up with other ideas for transistors, junction transistors, as they were called. Um, and eventually uh, they were, they became. Um, you know, crucial to more, much more crucial to the electronics industry as well. Um, you know, what I think changed things as much or more is that eventually Bill Shockley left Bell Labs and mm -hmm. went out to the West Coast to California. And he was really one of the first ever to, to say, I'm going to become an entrepreneur. I mean, you can look at like Hewlett Packard and HP before him, but it was a little different. Shockley left the East Coast, which, you know, in, in the US, this is kind of almost like a symbolic um, transition, leaving the East Coast to go to the West as an entrepreneur, as this world-renowned physicist who had won the Nobel Prize to start a company, a first transistor company. And he started it on some land that Stanford University was developing as an incubator. And he created something called Shockley Semiconductor. And um, you know, for, for, for those who don't know this history, it's a very rich history of technology and entrepreneurship. I mean, Shockley was a very difficult man with all sorts of strange ideas about 
about race and intelligence, you know, uh, you know, objectionable ideas really. But he was actually a really good at hiring people. And he, at his first company, he really hired people who became the sort of um, entrepreneurs of, you know, the, the, in the, the transistor age or the um, integrated circuit age. And these were people he hired, you know, um, for instance, uh, who, like like Moore, who created Moore's Law, that created the companies like Intel, um, that created venture capital firms like Kleiner Perkins, um, that really seeded, I think, the companies that created the information age. Now, there was another company, Texas Instruments, that kind of grew out of the transistor um, work down, you know, uh, with, with um, Kilby. And um, uh, so, so the, you know, there were other companies, um, but all of it, I think, if you were drawing a kind of uh, family tree, for instance, of how the transistor and how the information age began, you'd really kind of begin at Bell Labs and it would branch off from there into Shockley Semiconductor and Texas Instruments and um, eventually Fairchild Semiconductor, which grew out of Shockley's company and then Intel. And then, you know, of course, the modern day. Does that yeah. sort of get at the answer of your question a little Absolutely. bit? Absolutely. Uh, you, you, uh, you touched all the key points also because uh, I want to emphasize, as I uh, was listening to, you know, <laughs> deeply to what you were saying. Uh, so from the ashes of, uh, of uh, let's say, Shockley attempt to, to become an entrepreneur, how a whole industry was born. As we said, I mean, Shockley was uh, this uh, character, was uh, like a very smart person. He actually built a whole industry. And as you said, he was very, very good at uh, picking uh, the right people as uh, it would turn out later on. But mm -hmm. uh, another, another point is also that um, I guess for the first time, there is this transition from being a physicist to becoming an entrepreneur. Because let's remember that before, if you were a scientist, a physicist, you just wouldn't go out and you know try to become an entrepreneur. So also this uh, transition that Shoghi did personally, I think it was very important also to open the way to many others uh, going forward to actually uh, know that it was possible to get out from research and just becoming an entrepreneur. Yep. So I think it's a it's very important point. And also he, he, he did that in, uh, in what would later on become uh, Silicon Valley. And as you said, uh, just uh, emphasizing a little bit more the transition because uh, it's so important. Like uh, Shogley, of course, uh, opened up uh, his own shop uh, in California, as you said, building up Shockley um, uh, semiconductors, uh, which would uh, eventually pick up the right people, but uh, completely fail. Uh, also, probably for lack of uh, leadership on on the side of Shockley, or the fact that, uh, as you also recount in the book, uh, uh, um, he was very focused on the technology that he created, but probably uh, he didn't uh, actually focus on how this technology could evolve behind what uh, he had envisioned. And uh, um, also, like as we said, from uh, Shockley, uh, from the ashes of, uh, of the company that Shockley had created, other companies like uh, Fairchild Semiconductors and uh, you know uh, came up, and then from Fairchild we had, uh, we, had we had those people like Moore, Noise, uh, Henry that uh, then uh, later on created the Intel, and then as we know from Intel, of course, um, they were the first family of uh, uh, chips, uh, which was the the uh, for uh, the four four thousand four family um, that uh, opened up a whole industry. I mean, uh, we have. Uh, 
all of a sudden people like uh, Paul Allen, uh, which also in his biography, um, which I have here with me, uh, the, the idea man also emphasized how the, the family of the first family of chips that finally Intel created was uh, was a huge deal because all of a sudden uh, you could develop an operating system on top of uh, of uh, of a semiconductor which uh, of a chip which before was not uh, possible with the previous technology so there were a few jumps after that um, mm -hmm. and uh, a few technologies that were actually developed that exponentially increased the ability to to um, uh, make those semiconductors and also in the as a as a side note in the show i'm gonna have also federico fagin uh, as, as a guest uh, who was one of the leading team members also at uh, intel uh, who made the, the the family of chips that later on would become extremely important for uh, the whole development of, uh, of the industry so uh, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to emphasize a little bit more because what you said was so important that uh, i mean it, it just created the, the whole uh, silicon valley as we know it uh, today right and it's yeah. you know it's it's a it's a it's a really important point because i mean in, in some ways the book is about technology but it's also about you know how innovation kind of leads to these sort of up economic upheavals and how how these kinds of i think how these innovations, I should point out, that are not just—they're not just inventions. They're—they're they're sort of what I call in the book platform innovations, where they—they they sort of revolutionize entire industries. And really, when you think about the implications of them and the wealth it creates, the number of jobs—it's—it's it's quite staggering. So, um, you know, to to write about Bell Labs is is really—it's—it's it, or to read about Bell Labs—it's mm. it, more than just sort of saying, "Oh, this is how the transistor is made." It's—it's it's also, I think. Or I hope at least, you know, to sort of understand how kind of economic revolutions begin in some ways. Yeah. And you also touch another key point, which one thing is actually uh, invention, another is innovation. And where you can actually probably patent, uh, as it happened, uh, uh, inventions, it's very hard to actually patent uh, like innovations, because innovations, they are like the result of many things combined together. Mm -hmm. um, many inventions, but also um, processes that go behind the, the technical aspect, which are about also the ability to, 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 to scale, distribute. I mean, it, it, innovation, it's something completely different from uh, the invention, which is something uh, primarily technical. So I think this is also a very important uh, point, which uh, you made me think about right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, moving forward, uh, it's interesting also to look at uh, one invention that uh, uh, you know Bell Labs uh, came up with, which was the the, the picture phone. Mm -hmm. uh, can you can you tell us a little bit more about the story, the context, and what happened there? Yeah, yeah, okay. So the, I mean, Bell Labs. You know, I, I mentioned a bit of the successes, this lab that changed the world, and I, you know, I think a big part of Bell Labs too was that you know it wasn't it wasn't um, it didn't always, uh, sometimes it failed and sometimes it made mistakes. And sometimes the people at Bell Labs whose job, or at least as they saw it, was to try and figure out what the future would be, um, figured it out incorrectly. And, you know, going back to like the 50s and 1960s, there was this belief at Bell Labs that eventually telephone conversations would evolve into video conversations. And, um, you know the 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 technology really wasn't ready, but 
you know, they would debut these early prototype video phones uh, at, for instance, the World's Fair in the early 1960s. And really by the early 1970s, they were ready to turn this idea into a business. And it was called the picture phone. And um, the idea was really that they would sell these fairly high priced subscriptions to businesses. And they perceived a really large demand for this that companies in the future, everybody would want to look at the person they were talking to. Companies would pay high prices. Everybody would have a picture phone in their office, maybe at their home as well. And they started marketing this. They put in really hundreds of millions of dollars, which would probably be somewhere in the billions uh, today um, into developing this technology. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that it was a complete terrible failure of business. The technology was, was actually pretty good at the time. I mean, there wasn't really the bandwidth by any means that we had today. So there were limitations on the picture and the, the sort of quality of, of, of the image, for instance, but it was a colossal failure. And I think, you know, we can learn a few lessons from it. One that if we look at it today, where we're having Google chats and Zoom meetings and everything, I mean, the general idea was, was correct that eventually, you know, video chats would play a very large part in culture and business. Um, but, you know, one, if you're too early, you're wrong. And you have to hit a moment that, that, that the culture is ready for it, I think. Um, and, and two, that, you know, that, that this kind of, um, um, I guess you could say, pushing of technology without sort of understanding demand um, can be very dangerous sometimes. That, you know, sitting in a room and deciding that the future of technology is going to go to this place that I envision um, is, is a very risky pursuit. And um, really, you know, the engineers and the marketers at Bell Labs were completely shocked. They just didn't understand. Um, eventually, they did understand bitterly that, that what a failure it was. But going into it, they didn't understand um, how little demand there was for people to see each other on the phone. Yeah. And, you know, it's also, as we said, it is a matter of invention versus innovation. Innovation is also based on economic incentives. And those oftentimes also come as a sort of top-down uh, you know, approach where, for instance, if, uh, let's say, there was also a push from the government to actually uh, go toward uh, mobile communication or uh, this sort of communication, then it would have been possible to achieve, uh, you know, develop this market, let's say, in uh, probably 10, 20 years, who knows. But uh, it's important also to highlight that instead at the time, uh, like uh, also the government were, was more focused in broadening the, the um, uh, TV um, you know, um, broadcasting rather than focusing on mobile. I think it's very interesting because in, in the 50s, there was also this decision of the FCC to actually um, award, award uh, block free frequencies to uh, broadcasting TV rather than uh, giving those frequencies uh, to, to mobile uh, communications, mm -hmm. which probably would have helped definitely to uh, launch uh, um, more successfully uh, the, the the picture phone, which as we can tell from today's standard is actually uh, pretty pretty successful. I mean, we have uh, um, video uh, calls as uh, one of the main applications of uh, uh, you know mobile communication. So definitely was uh, was too early, but uh, there were no uh, economic incentives uh, developed 
that uh, would help them to to launch this market, develop these markets quickly. quickly. So uh, innovation is also a lot about uh, uh, market development. The market development is something that you can control or you can't. And you need to understand whether you can move forward. Um, and, you know, just to get to the end of it, as uh, the time is almost due, um, do you see any uh, parallel in today's uh, business world with, uh, with you know, with, with Bell Labs? Um, mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I, you know, I see it on a smaller scale um, to some extent, maybe at companies like Google that have labs like Google X, for instance. Um, but I think Bell Labs was sort of a particular moment in time. It was the right industry at the right moment. Um, and I don't really see um, an R&D lab with that same kind of uh, uh same kind of ambition, same kind of amount of money, same kind of long-term sort of focus. And that's not necessarily a criticism. It's just that, you know, Bell Labs was not really operating in a kind of private sector as a private sector technology company would. Um, and we have something, you know, different today, at least in the private sector. So, you know, you could say, for instance, in the United States, we have these national laboratories that are looking at long-term research and projects. But then again, they don't have the manufacturing capacity that Bell Labs had. So those are different too. Um, so in a nutshell, um, I don't think there will be another Bell Labs, but I think if there's some kind of future where we see a kind of great um, concentration of scientists and engineers working on some difficult problems, I think it might resemble more maybe like a Los Alamos model um, where there's a kind of crucial sort of intensive period of work that happens. Uh, and it might be to solve the next pandemic. It might be something, I, some terrible problem I don't want to think about. But um, I think for, for the most part, we don't see Bell Labs at that scale um, or that kind of um, level of funding. What we might see for the moment are these, these sort of smaller labs working in the private sector. Yeah, and definitely I agree that, uh, you know, some of the uh, uh, similar uh, environments, of course, are uh, uh, Google X, uh, which is also called the Moonshot uh, Factory, uh, right. as Google has a, a huge amount of resources, and they also look at uh, exponential technologies. Uh, and uh, on the other end, also, uh, one bet on my side is also companies uh, like, uh, like uh, SpaceX as well, I mean, um, which... As, as a fun fact, um, the, the company also is experimenting a lot with, you know, new new technologies. And uh, yeah, I'm glad that we have also another guest in the show, which uh, which, which is your dog. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about that. She she just was was picked up by her dog walker. So yeah, no worries, sorry. no worries. She was, I think it you was, said. It you was nice, and she got she got excited about space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so she confirmed my 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 thought about uh, SpaceX. Also, as a, as a last uh, fun fact, uh, you know, the uh, as you mentioned the book, uh, the the Bell Labs uh, development, or rather, up there happened on a, on a on a, a small island atoll, which was called uh, Kwajalein, and uh, this is also the same place uh, where SpaceX built its uh, first uh, rockets. So there's yeah. some coincidence there. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think your point about SpaceX is a good one, that they, they don't, you know, they, they aren't really operating purely in the private sector. They have NASA investing in them as yeah. well. And it's been very helpful for them to achieve a kind of long, longer term vision.
Yeah, absolutely. And thanks, uh, John, for joining this conversation. What are you up next, just to close this up? Uh, that's a great question. I'm actually writing, just starting a third book on um, long-term thinking, but I'm, I'm focusing actually on a, a NASA mission from the 1970s called Voyager, um, nice. which is the longest space mission ever ever undertaken. And um, it's still going. It's, it's going to reach its 50th anniversary in a couple of years. So I, I mm. hope my book comes out right before that. Nice. It would be nice to have you, of course, when this is ready. I'll be extremely glad to, to, to read the book because I enjoyed so much uh, the Idea Factory. So thanks. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Gennaro. It was a pleasure. Great questions. I really appreciate it.